I'm glad you're here. It's great to see everyone. Super Bowl Sunday, if anybody cares. But uh, uh, I don't know if, if, if uh, you tell me three categories. Chiefs, who's Chiefs? All right, okay. Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Who, who's, hey, Brown's made it to the playoffs and it could care less. All right, yeah, that's, that's what I figured. Yeah, we're still celebrating hot chocolate every Sunday morning, so right here. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, we're in a new series. We started last Sunday in the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a, a short book, but it's an amazing book, has a lot to teach us. We want to focus in. It's unique in a lot of ways. It's one of only two books in all the Bible that's named after a woman, uh, that's, that's something. It's, it's the only book in the Old Testament that's named after somebody who's not Jewish. And it's the only book in the entire Bible, the only one, who's named after an ancestor of Jesus. So a lot of interesting things about Ruth. But if you'll remember, it started in a story. We covered chapter 1 uh, last time. And the story is about a guy in Israel. His name is Elimelech. And he's not really faithful to God. And we talked about this as the time of the judges where uh, the nation would sort of go through really difficult times, cry out to God, God would deliver them, then they would follow God for a while, then they would turn away from God, then bad things would happen, and it would just pre repeat the cycle over and over and over, and that's what's happening. During this time, this man, Elimelech, uh, goes through a tough time. He, he's from Bethlehem. Things are tough in Israel. There's a famine, not a lot of food. And this guy, he starts making a series of bad decisions. He decides that he's going to leave Israel, which he wasn't supposed to do, and go. But that's one thing that's, that's a negative. But the worst thing is where he went, which was Moab. And although Moab was close by, only on the other side of the Dead Sea, these were enemies of Israel. These were pagan people who followed uh, false gods, primarily the god of Chemosh, who uh, was worshipped in a lot of perverted ways, including sacrificing your children to this god. And so this man, Elimelech, not only goes there, but he takes his entire family there, his wife, Naomi, and then they have two sons, uh, Malon and Kilion. He takes them as well. They get to this land of Moab where uh, he thinks that things are going to be better, but they end up, things just deteriorate. It gets worse and worse. The Elimelech ends up dying. Then the two sons end up taking pagan Moabite women as their wives. Both sons are unable to bear any children, and then they both die. And so now Naomi's left, the wife of Elimelech, she's left in a precarious situation. She's in a foreign land where, where she's considered the enemy, you know, not, not a good thing. And she has two daughters-in-law. They have no way to support themselves. She has no husband, no sons. They're going to face starvation even if things are well in the land. It's not good. So she hears that things are better back home, so she decides to go back to Israel, which is a great decision. As she decides to go back and heads back toward Israel, she, her daughters-in-law are with her, and then she stops. She tells her daughters-in-law, hey, you guys need to go back to your families. 
go, go back home, find somebody to marry, and have a life. Because where I'm going, I'm going to have nothing. I'm going to be impoverished. I have nothing to go back to. I'm going back there. My family's pretty much wiped out. And it'll be even worse for you to scratch out a living because you'll not only be in the same position I am, but you'll be Moabites. You'll be foreigners. And so one of the daughters-in-law named Orpah, she decides that's good advice, and she goes back to her family to sort of to live her life. You know, these are, are pagan women. But the other one, Ruth, clings to Naomi, and she says, no, I'm going with you. And there's kind of a conversion experience there. She says, hey, I, I'm going with you. Your people are going to be my people, and, uh, and your God will be my God, which is significant. And then she sort of makes a pledge to God using God's personal name to say, hey, I'm sticking with you until death. And, and after you die, they'll just bury me right, right where you're buried. I mean, she is committed. And so they head back. It, it's all kind of bad news. They, they get there. But then in the last verse of chapter 1, the, the author gives us a little glimmer of hope. And that is when they get to Bethlehem, it's the very beginning of the barley season. And so we have that kind of nugget. But make no mistake, not, Naomi's not focused on that. She gets there and she is discouraged. She's depressed. She sees these people. It's been 10 years. She sees these people who used to know her. And she says, hey, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant anymore. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. And to her, as far as she's concerned, her whole life has just been a train wreck. And she doesn't see it ever getting back on the rails. And she has lost her family. She has basically nothing to look forward to. And, and she's just, things are bleak. And, and what she can't see because of her terrible circumstances is sort of the bigger picture. Now, I tried to illustrate that for you guys last Sunday, if you'll remember, and didn't do a very good job if you were here, because I forgot how sophisticated and intelligent you people actually are. And so I threw up some close-up pictures and said, can you identify what this is, thinking that you wouldn't be able to, and you guessed every single one of them. All right, so now I'm ready. It's game on, all right? So now I'm going to try to make this point one more time. So sometimes we see things close up. We don't see the big picture. Here's the first one. You ready? You, you know the drill. What is it? This is the easy one. Doritos. Okay. I didn't hear a lot of people shouting that one out. Okay. Let's try this one. What's that? Yeah, all of a sudden you're not thinking you're so smart, right? What is it? No, no, no. Here's what it is. It's the lighthouse at Marblehead. Oh, all of a sudden, not doing so great. All right, next one. What's that? Go ahead. Oh, come on. Let's see it. Yeah, the Edmund Fitzgerald. That's what that is. Yeah, you've been peeking. All right, yeah. That's why we need lighthouses. Anyway, yeah. All right, I got one more for you. That's Pastor Tim. You can't even recognize one of our own pastors when he's close up. 
All right, so now I'm illustrating what I failed to do last time. Hey, when we sometimes we see the details, we're so caught up in life in what's right in front of our face that we don't see the big picture. We can't see what's going on. We can't see the context. And that's exactly what's happening to Naomi. She doesn't see it. And here we want to start in Ruth chapter 2. Beginning of verse 1. Now, this first verse, the author sort of gives us a key piece of information that Naomi and Ruth don't, don't know anything about yet to kick us off. So here, are you ready for Ruth 2? All right, five of you are ready, but we're going to go ahead anyway, and we'll assume that the rest of you will catch up. So here's how it goes. Ruth 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And remember, in this, these ancient times, family is everything. Family, then clan, then tribe. I mean, family is key. So that's our kind of hint, but they don't know that. Now, verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, when you read this in the original language, verses 2 and 3, they happen very abruptly. I mean, it's just bam. And it's kind of implying here by the author, when they get there, Ruth wastes no time. I mean, they basically just get there, and uh, Naomi sort of laments to her friends, but Ruth is like, hey, can I go to the fields and glean? She realizes we're in trouble, and she is fast to take action and to try to help their circumstances. She's going to try to get some food, and so she goes to glean, and maybe you remember from last time, Glean is just a word that means to gather up the leftover harvest after the harvesters have gone through the field. And typically the way that worked is harvesters would go through with a one-handed sickle and they would gather grain in one hand, cut it with the other. When they had more than they could hold in their hand or as much as they could hold, then they would lay that bundle down and they would go through a field that way, a line of them. And then the ladies would follow, they would take those bundles combine some of those, and then tie them together and make bigger bundles. So that's kind of the process. But the law had stated in Israel, God said, hey, when you're harvesting your field, don't harvest all of it. Leave the corners. Leave the edges. And when you drop something or something gets out of your bundle, don't go back and pick it up. Just leave it there. And that was actually a provision for people who didn't have anything so people could feed themselves. It was just a way that they did that. Now, so that's what I remember when I was a kid, uh, we uh, were stationed, my dad was stationed to um, a, a naval base on the East Coast. Uh, no housing was available. We ended up getting a house was, which was kind of out in the country. And next to our house was a potato, potato field. And they had harvested the potatoes, but they only wanted the bigger potatoes. And so then we were allowed then as kids to go into the field mom sent us, you know, to glean the small potatoes, you know, the little round potatoes, so we could get all those that we could carry. And I remember that being kind of fun, because I was a kid, you know, and we did it. We were gleaning 
the field. But now here's what chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 2 is this picture we have in the Bible of somebody coming to God and committing their lives to God, and then because of that, serving others. And that's exactly what this story is about. And it's not just Ruth that does it. She comes to God, but then she realized to love God is to serve others because that's what God tells us to do. And that's exactly what she does. So Ruth served Naomi. That's kind of the first thing that we see. And, and when you're serving, sometimes there are jobs that nobody wants. You know, have you ever been around? I remember one time back when I was a custodian here at Grace, I, I went by the old kitchen, by, by the old, uh, off the old gym in the other part of the building, and there were a, uh, several men standing around in the kitchen. I don't even remember who they were, but probably like Tim Soule, Chuck Solander, you know, got Bill Pickard, you know, guys like that, you know, I don't know, but you, you know, just a group of guys, Mel might've been there, standing around and they're looking down into a hole in the floor. So I go into the kitchen and I realize what they're looking at is called a grease trap. It's just a hole in the floor and I mean, it stinks. And so I'm, I'm pretty curious. I don't know anything about what later I found out was a grease trap. And so we're all looking at that, and they know about it. And so they're talking. There's a problem. It's like overflowing. It, you know, it's causing an issue. And then as they talk, they start saying, well, somebody needs to reach down in there and, and do something, unplug it, whatever. I, I don't know what it was. By the way, since I've studied up on grease traps in order to give this message, and there are no moving parts, but whatever. So then I decide, well, I am the custodian. So I guess I should be the one that does this. So I, I take off my outer shirt. I have a t-shirt on. And I lay on the floor. And, then, and this is a, like an almost solid mat of food particles, grease, and oil that's almost solidified. I mean, it's nasty. And it stunk. So I lay down on the floor. And I stick my arm all the way down there like to my shoulder. I can't even remember what I was doing, what, why my arm was in there, what I was supposed to be doing in there, because as I say, I've since learned there's no moving parts in a grease trap, so I don't know what I was feeling around for. Here's what I remember. When I pulled my arm out, it was just caked with this, and it was, I mean, it smelled. I mean, everybody's like, whoa. And, you know, and I wipe it all off. What I remember is like for a week, I couldn't get that smell off my arm. I mean, we would be at dinner like three days later. It's like past the salt, and they'd be like, whoa. You know, it, it was just terrible. You know, the, you know, some jobs, you know, they're just, they're not fun. Well, you just do what needs to be done. Well, that's what Ruth's doing. She's jumping at the chance to just do what needs to be done. She knows they're in a, a precarious situation, and she takes initiative. She doesn't wait for somebody to ask. She does, they don't sit around and have a long discussion about it. She knows she needs to take action. And we have this kind of abrupt language in, in the Hebrew where, you know, she takes off and she starts taking care of business. And then the other thing that we'll notice as the story unfolds is as she takes action, she does it in a humble way. She has humility. She goes to a field, we're going to find out. And, and then just so happens to be Boaz's field. And she, she gets there. But even though the law said that they were supposed to not harvest everything and leave for people to glean, 
She doesn't just presume on that, and I'm sure she's been informed about that. She actually goes to the foreman who's heading up the harvest of this particular field, and she asks for permission. And so I'm just saying she's doing that kind of in a, a humble way. She's not presuming. And humility, in this sense, is sort of the opposite of entitlement. You know, entitlement is you owe me. Entitlement is I deserve this. Entitlement is this is, you know, this is what you need to do for me. Humility is you don't owe me. You don't have to do this. You know, and that's the way that she kind of goes after this. She's very humble, and she goes kind of out of her way to ask. She kind of understands that even though God said we're supposed to do this, not everybody did it, and this is private property. So she asks, and she doesn't see her personal poverty as a, a reason to sort of infringe on the rights of others. You know, she doesn't see it, I'm poor, so that's your problem. She's like, I'm poor, that's my problem. I need to do something. And that's what she does. She humbly kind of works through the system. And not only that, she worked hard. Uh, she didn't wait for a miracle. She trusted God. And she went out and gleaned. Now, I don't know if you've done any gleaning lately, but, you know, when I did the potatoes as a kid, I thought that was kind of fun. When I was a teenager one time, I went out to a radish field and harvested part of that. I, I don't know if we were gleaning. I don't even know. It was just one day why I was there. It wasn't a whole day or anything. It was just for a while, part of a day. I hated it. You know, you have to bend over radishes. You got to bend low to get a radish. I mean, it's under the ground. You know, so you do that for a few hours. I remember, th I remember as a teenager ending that and thinking, this is not my career path. I do not want to do this for a job. This is backbreaking work. Well, Ruth is there doing this all day long. She is on it. And so that's how Ruth served God and served Naomi. Love God, love Naomi, serve God, serve Naomi. That's what she did. But we also see something else in this chapter of serving is that this man, Boaz, ends up hugely serving Ruth also. So Boaz was introduced to us in the first verse, and he's described as a man of great wealth. And this phrase, man of great wealth, it could also be translated of man of great worth or a, very, a greatly worthy man. And there's a lot kind of wrapped up in this. It's more than just... He's rich, there's more, go he's a worthy man. He's a man's man, he's a capable man. He's a man who gets things done. He stands up for what's right. It's like he's a man of wealth and wisdom and worship. It's sort of all tied in there. He's a righteous man's man, is kind of what's packed into this. And we discover that his love for God causes him to serve others and Ruth. And so as the story unfolds, we find out more about his character. I mean, he's gracious. He's a good-natured boss. He follows God's word. He takes care of people. The first words that we hear from him are, are sort of like a prayer for his people. It's just this. This is a man who follows God to where it shows up in his life to the extent that everybody around him knows he's a God follower. It would just be like today, we have a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. 
But there's not that many Christians who people could follow around for a day and go, wow, that guy is a Christian. That's what's happening. That's the kind of man Boaz was. People knew where he stood. So the story continues in verse 4. Now behold, Boaz, by the way, Boaz, that's a great name. Boaz, we have a little Boaz in our church. Boaz, you know, that's good. Anyway, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. So the boss shows up, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who is in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. And then there's this kind of awkward phrase. She has been sitting in the house for a little while, which is a difficult phrase to interpret from the Hebrew. That basically just means she's been working all day except for a little rest in a shelter. It continues verse 8. Then Boaz said, then he approaches Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Do not glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. You see, Boaz finds out who she is and he, know, he doesn't know who she is. He just knows her by reputation. And he goes and talks to her and, and kind of does these things for her. And she says, well, why would you do this for me? And he basically says, wow, because we know your reputation. You left everything. You left your family, your culture, your country, your gods. And you came here to help your mother-in-law, Naomi. You came here to follow the one true God, the God of Israel. And so... Boaz is, and, and notice the prayer here, Boaz is saying, hey, you follow, and he, he kind of does a prayer for her that she would be rewarded, that she would be blessed. But why is he saying that? Because he knows that's the way it works with God. You can't outgive God. When you give up something for God, God will he'll bless you. He'll reward you. You can't outgive him. Like our kids, our little kids can't out. You know, sometimes our kids will give us something. They can't outgive, and we're, we'll give them more. You know, we he can't outgive us. Well, we can't outgive God. 
Boaz understands that, wow, you've done this. The Lord is going to repay you. The Lord is going to reward you. We know you by your reputation. We know what you've left. We know that you've left everything to come under the realm of the true God and to take care of your mother-in-law. And it's the same for us. When we put ourselves under God, when we commit to following God, When we decide, hey, I'm going to do life God's way. I'm going to live the way God would want me to live, where it actually shows up in my life. Not me just talking about being a Christian, me doing the Christian life. And then no matter what happens, how you make decisions, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to go on, we can know He'll never leave us. What about this situation? What's going on? Keep committed to God. Keep following Him. Keep serving others the way he's told us to. And let him take care of the rest. That's what we need to do. That's what what Ruth did. Next verse is verse 13. Then she said, I found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Kind of a vinegar sausage flavor bread. And so she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So basically some of this stuff Boaz is doing in front of Ruth, but some of the stuff he's saying, she's gone back to work and he's telling his workers, hey, make it easy for her. Make it easy for her to glean, leave some stuff laying around, and even pull out some of the stocks from the bundles and leave those for her so, so she can get more. So it just makes her work easier. And what's his motive there? She doesn't even know he's saying that. It's to help her. He's just trying to help her. He's just trying to do the right thing, the good thing. And so we get this picture of Boaz. First of all, he's faithful to follow God in this whole reaping thing. That He doesn't You know, he doesn't harvest everything. He's conscious of allowing people to come and glean. And who knows how many people were doing that. Remember, this is the time of the judges where people were either following God or they were following other terrible pagan gods. They just kept vacillating back and forth, back and forth. But Boaz is a rock. He's following God and he's faithful to follow God in his commandments. Now, the main thing that Boaz is impressed with regarding Ruth is her faithfulness. He knows her by reputation. He knows what she's done. And you can tell he admires that. He, he looks up to it. He's like, wow, your reputation, you're the talk of the town. You left everything to come to a foreign land to follow our God and take care of your mother-in-law when, when it's bleak. Rather than just go on and live out your life where you were. And Ruth has this reputation of servanthood. And it's, you know, everybody, the town's buzzing about her. Not just because of her ethnicity. She's a Moabite. 
but because of her actions. They're so honorable. Now, Boaz also protects Ruth. You know, he kind of tells her, hey, you know, I'm going to watch out for you. And, I, you know, and, and what's going on? What, she's a Moabite. And so she's you know, going to be gleaning in fields. And I don't know if there's competition with other gleaners or some of the harvesters might resent that. But she doesn't want, he doesn't want her to be treated roughly. So she says, he tells her, you know, you stay among my people. And I've told my people to sort of watch over for you. He's not protecting her for motive. He's just being a righteous man. And then he provides for Ruth. You know, hey, give her extra, make it easy. And when he talks about her, hey, you don't have to go off and get water. You can drink from what our servants get. He sort of, even though she's not like an employee, he's sort of making her a part of the group. He's sort of saying, hey, she's one of us. And then he serves her. He offers her lunch, right? She sits down with the other workers. He grabs some bread, dip it in the sauce. You know, and she's doing that. But then he does something else. He gets up. He grabs some roasted grain. Comes out a little clearer in the original, but and pours it out into her lap or her hands or a little pile in front of her or her apron. He pours out roasted grain for her to eat besides the bread. And, and we don't know how long it's been since Ruth has eaten or Naomi. It may have been days. We don't know. And so she eats until she's satisfied, and this is significant enough to mention, and then she has a little bit left over that she tucks into a pocket, and that comes up later. And so here's, here's what we see. And, and she's kind of stunned through all this. Why have you shown me this, this kindness? And Boaz is like, wow, you're legendary. You're, you're, you know, your reputation is amazing. You're following God. And then it continues, verse 17. So she... So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, an ephah, barley is a grain kind of like wheat. They also had wheat. But so she beats this out. She has like 30 pounds, 30 to 40 pounds of barley. It's significant. It's way more than what somebody would normally get. Last Sunday... You know, I was talking about us delivering rice to the people in Myanmar. I haven't forgot that. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But because I was talking about that, I started thinking and I thought, you know what? You know, we were talking about the toilet paper famine, right? You know, I'm thinking, yeah, things happen fast. So probably we should have in our house, you know, some food for a rough time. So I thought, I'm just going to, I'm going to go buy some bulk rice. So I decided to buy bulk rice. I go to Aldi. I was calling it Aldi. Say, no, it's Aldi. So I go to Aldi, and, and I get there, and so I'm looking for rice, bulk rice, but the biggest bag I can find is just a three-pound bag. It's just a little bit bag. So I get 10 of those, and I put it in a box, and, I'm, and then I'm looking around. I'm looking all over for a cart. There's no carts at Aldi inside the building. Couldn't find anything. So I put these all in a box, and so then I'm carrying this 30 pounds of rice, 10 three-pound bags, in the box. And then I'm wandering around the store, and I'm getting a little distracted because I notice they have cookies. So I'm over in the cookie aisle, and I'm checking that out. And then I see, oh, they have chocolate chips in the bag. So I think, well, that's going to come in handy. So I grab a bag of chocolate, chocolate, pull that on. And then I'm thinking, well, I have 30 pounds of rice. I'm going to need some soy sauce. So I go, I get some soy sauce. I put that on. In the meantime, I'm just sort of wandering around the store, and, and the box is getting heavy. It's only 30 pounds. And I'm thinking, this is getting heavy. And I still can't find a cart. There's like no cart in the entire store. And so I check out, you know, and then I'm hauling, I'm hauling it outside, and I'm like, 
Well, I'm, it's, this is kind of embarrassing. I mean, we got Fight Club starting in a few weeks, and yeah, I'm hauling just it's a little box of rice that's only 30 pounds, and I'm like, wow, this is getting kind of heavy. And I take it to the, the, uh, you know, the truck, and Pam's, she was waiting for me. She knew I was just getting this bulk rice, and so she's in there waiting for me, and I'm like, there's no car in the place, and she, Kevin, look. And, there, you know, there's carts lined up all on the outside, you know, so you get them on the outside before you, actually, a friend of mine came and gave me this. Uh, in between the services. Apparently, a quarter comes in handy. Whatever. You know, aren't the carts supposed to be right inside the door? I mean, that's, that's my expectation. All right. Not at Aldi. All right. Got it. But anyway, 30 pounds is kind of a load, and it's way more than what a reaper would more normally get. Way more. As a matter of fact, we know from ancient documents and other places in the Old Testament that a, a soldier... You can hire a soldier and keep them going. That would be one to two pounds of barley, roasted barley, a day. So basically, you could live off a, a pound a day. So this is like 30 pounds is like over two weeks of food for two people. And so it, it's, a, it's a bundle, all right? So, so here it is, verse 18. So she took it up. And went into the city. So she's hauling her 30 pounds. She's not having any problem. So she went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. She's got her leftover lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the, man, uh, the name of the man with whom I work for today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living or to the dead. And again Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So here, here's the picture. So she gets this big haul first day, and that sets them up pretty good. But she keeps going back. She's gleaning, gleaning, gleaning from the beginning of the barley harvest to the end of the wheat harvest, which is right after the barley harvest. We're talking about uh, two months, two months' time. So now it's, it's a couple of months later, and then the question is, okay, well, now she's got some provisions. The problem is, Will this last 10 months? I mean, it's coming, right? How long will it last? Now, all of a sudden, she's not going to be in Boaz's field anymore, so they're not going to have any contact, so she's not going to be protected in any way. What's going to happen to them? Will they have enough to, to get by on? Because the gleaning is over for the year until next year. And so will it last? What's going to happen? And we'll, find, you know, we'll continue that next week. We're going to find out those things. In chapter 3. But today, we need to take this with us. When we love God, we serve others. 
And when we serve others because we love God, God uses it for His purposes. That's what's all over Ruth chapter 2. Remember, Jesus came to serve. He's the king of the universe. He comes and He says, I've come to serve. And He taught us to serve others. Now, serving others is not really natural to us. It is a little bit. I mean, serving our family can be sort of natural to us. I remember a a few weeks ago, um, both my son-in-law, Jake, and my daughter, Bree, had to work like a 12-hour shift, which takes them about 13 hours with travel, you know, a long time. And so it came up that my granddaughters needed to be watched, three of them, and they were sick, and we were trying to figure out if that was strep throat or whatever, and I didn't think, you know, it'd be good for Pam to get strep, whatever. So through a series of circumstances, I say, I'll do it. And normally, I'm just the assistant to Pam when we do these undertakings, right? But this time, I say, I'll do it. And, and Pam's like, what? And I'm like, I'll do it. And she's like, this is 13 hours. I'm like, I'll do it. I can do it. She's like, ah, I don't know. And then I, I tell Bree, Bree, I'll do it. And Bree's like, no, what? And I'm like, no, I can do this. She's like, Dad, this is 13 hours. I'm like, ah, I can do it. You know, which is a whole nother thing. You know, they didn't think I could handle it. And anyway, that's a whole nother story how that went. But it actually went amazingly smooth. But the point is, hey, we get, we want to serve people that we love. We serve our kids, our grandkids, people in our family. We all do that. But, and God wants us to do that. But that's not what God's talking about. He wants us to serve others, other people who aren't in our family, people we don't know so well. God wants us to serve, especially other believers. As a matter of fact, he said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. And by the way, Peter spent as much time with Jesus as anybody. Here's what he says. Each, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul says this in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, all people, and especially, he says, to those who are of the household of faith. What's going on here? God is calling us, if we're committed to follow God, he's calling us to serve all people, to do good to all people, especially other believers. And that's why I'm impressed with you all today. Because last Sunday, we had a chance to serve people that we did not know. We talked about how there's been kind of a long-running civil war in the northern part of Myanmar, the government and the soldiers against the people, the tribal people in the north. And after Sunday, actually what happened, there's a military takeover of the government, which will be even worse for these people. But it wasn't great when the government was in control. And 5,000 people had their villages burned, which is not that rare of an occurrence. It happens every several months or whatever. 
and then these people had nothing. They don't know their villages are going to be burned. The, the soldiers just show up, start shooting people, and burn their villages. And there's a resistance to that whole thing I don't want to get into. If you've seen Free Burma Rangers, the first part of that is all about that documentary. These were primarily Korean people, and we've helped many refugees in that part of the country before our church has. This group, what was unusual about this group, is it was estimated that they were about 80% Christian. There's less than 1% Christian in that part of the world. The Korean tribe has a little bit more Christians. They're a little bit more evangelized up in the mountains. But these were Korean people who they were estimated about 80%. So, I, sh- I threw out the need last Sunday with the dollar club thing. And we raised as a church family right here over $10,000. Wow. Isn't that great? With that, we, and we actually know there's another gift coming in, a significant gift. With that, then on Tuesday, as I said we do, we sent the money. And then you can see, uh, we have some images of how uh, that's being delivered. Here's just as they start this process of delivering this rice. It's across this border from Thailand to Myanmar. And then there's, you know, motorized canoe thing that they use in that part of the world. And, you know, loaded up with rice. And they're taking that to another spot in the river where a lot of these people who've been displaced, burned out of their homes, living in, in the jungle with nothing, are living. And they got rice. And a lot of those people are believers. And, and somehow all those people understand that there's some people somewhere on the other side of the world in America who gave money so they can have rice. They can subsist, subsist a, a little bit longer. And we're able to also provide some medicines and, and a few other things because we gave more. And that's going to feed 5,000 people for a while, for, you know, a week or two to help them get going here. But more than we want them to think, hey, there were some other people on the other side of the world, or even for the believers to know there are some Christians on the other side of the world. What those Christians will mainly know is God provided. God provided through you. That's what God wants to do through us as we serve other people. That's the whole point. God will work His plans. And here's, here's what I'm telling you about Ruth. Naomi doesn't know it, and, and Ruth doesn't know it, but through their faithfulness to God, through mainly through Ruth's faithfulness to God and Boaz's faithfulness, history has changed. We'll get to that next week. But here's what I'm telling all of us who gave. We don't know the lives we've changed this last week. We don't know. They don't have a way of expressing to us what that meant to them. Some of them are living in caves. Some of them are just in the open jungle. They just know God provided And we don't know how we impacted those lives, and we don't know maybe through through some of those gifts 
history can be changed, at least in that part of the world. That's how God wants to use every one of us. Now, I know when we think about serving God, we get so busy. We see that we're focused on the little and we think, well, you know, I don't have any skills. You know, this is not for me. I don't know where to serve. I don't know what to do. I don't think I can do it. I don't know anything about it. I don't have any special skills. They don't need me. And you think, well, how can God use me? God doesn't call Christians who are equipped. God equips those who are called. And He's called all of us to leverage whatever we have for His kingdom. Our time, our talent, our abilities, our resources. God has called all of us to make an impact, to make a difference by serving other people in the world, even people we don't know, and especially other believers. That's how God impacts the world. And God will work through that in ways that we will never be able to see because we won't see the biggest picture until we're in heaven. And then we'll get to see it all. Let's stand right now and pray together. Father in heaven, we, God, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you that we see your hand working through history. Sometimes it's easier than others, but we know you're always there. You're always working for your purposes and you use us. God, we thank you for that. Thank you for that privilege. Lord, I thank you for this church, a church that cares a church that gives, a church that serves. God, thank you. And Lord, help us to never give up on you because we're in the middle of the story. Lord, no matter what our circumstances, keep seeing your faithfulness, keep serving you, keep staying in the fight, waiting, expecting, watching to see what you will do next. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.